So we've been tracking through the book of Acts this year and are speedily coming towards its conclusion. But I got to tell you, I had a rather strange experience in preparing the sermon this Sunday. I wrote almost the whole thing on Monday. That never happens. (laughs) Usually I chip away at a sermon throughout the week, studying the passage, looking at original language, uh, reading various commentators, and letting it kind of germinate, and then completing it sometime over the weekend. And in all honesty, some sermon prep can go really late into the weekend. But I started working on this Monday morning, and it just clicked. And I wrote almost the whole thing in one shot. It freaked me out a little bit. And I immediately wondered, maybe it was just because it was just my own thoughts, and I figured that when I started to read the commentators later, I would realize I totally missed the mark, and I'd have to do a total rewrite. Well, later in the week, as I studied the passage more and read from various commentators, discovered that we all agreed, and what I had written were the exact same points by so many others. I don't know what that means for us this morning. But I do know that God's word is God's word and that it does not return empty, but will accomplish all that God desires. So we'll see what happens. Before we read it, then let's come before the Lord in prayer. Our Lord God, you are indeed the God of revelation and you speak and you do so with purpose. You have this word for us. We're going to read it and it's going to be your word simply read. And then it will be your word proclaimed. We know it comes from you. We know it comes with the gift of your spirit. And so we would ask for your spirit to come, to bear witness to the reading and preaching of the word that we would hear your word as your word. To that end, as always, we pray for the preacher who is not worthy, but by your grace, he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. We are in Acts chapter 24, and there are three straightforward sections to this chapter. There's the accusation, the defense, and then the response. So listen to God's words from Acts 24. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, the most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city, and they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers 
as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin, unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Well, we start with the accusation, which is one of deceit and flattery. They say, we have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation everywhere and in every way. Most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. You stinking liars. <laughs> you can't stand Rome. You can't stand any of Rome's leaders. You condemn and do not give gratitude. It would be like MSNBC issuing a statement to Donald Trump, we affirm your outstanding presidential leadership with gratitude in all of our broadcasts. Felix probably isn't buying any of what they're selling. But as we read earlier in Psalm 12, everyone lies to his neighbor. Their flattering lips speak with deception. Deceitful flattery is the way of the world. We are all aware of people who speak nicely to our face, while stabbing us in the back. Gossip is bearing bad news behind someone's back out of a bad heart, such that it's flattery to your face, but blast you behind your back. And so the deceit continues with three false accusations. First, we have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. Second, he is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. And third, he even tried to desecrate the temple, so he seized him. You stinking liars. You didn't find this to be true. You predetermined it to be true with no examining of the facts whatsoever. He hasn't stirred up any riots. The riots have been stirred up by others. And that you would call him a ringleader is preposterous because that is what you yourselves do. It was just a couple weeks ago that I had a pastor friend who recently said then, 
People tend to accuse others of the very thing that they are doing. I've often thought that to be true, and in particular situations have observed it to be true. And then another pastor affirmed the same thing, blew me away, that people tend to accuse others of the very thing that they are doing. It's why hypocrisy is everywhere. People post fake news stories about people posting fake news. People shout at someone to stop shouting. People exclude others for being exclusive. And so Christians ought not fight fire with fire, nor return an eye for an eye. Indeed, we are called to overcome evil with good. And again, Psalm 12 observes that there is deceit everywhere, but God will reveal his truth. And so we shall reveal truth. The second of the false accusations to be the ringleader of an authorized sect, if it was true, would be seen as treason against Caesar because it was stirring up dissension. Of course, that's not what Paul was doing. That's what the Jews were doing. Dissension is treasonous and treacherous. In Titus 3, the apostle Paul exhorted, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. But again, the person who actually does this will accuse others of doing it and not realize that they are actually guilty of doing the very thing they accuse others. They'll say, I formed a group of people over here, and we've decided that you're divisive. You formed the other group of people, calling me divisive. To be a leader of a religious sect without Roman approval was against the law, and this will be a key point for Paul to defend, and we'll see that he does so by saying that followers of the way are not a separate sect. So stay tuned because it's an important distinction still for us today. But then the third accusation is also incredibly false, that Paul tried to desecrate the temple. You stinking liars. It's a hard thing, isn't it, to listen to people lie, ever. But it's especially hard to hear a gang of people come together and to lie together, especially when they lie together about you. Verse 9, the Jews joined in the accusation asserting that these things were true. Well, there are times when someone is lying and they know that they are lying. They do it because perhaps they think the uh, means um, are justified, uh, that the ends justify the means. And sadly, there are some who are lying and simply don't know that they're lying. Either they have come to believe a lie and are repeating it, or they have heard only part of the story and believe that's the whole story, and then advance only that half of the story so that it's a half-true, which is a lie. And some have simply decided what they want to be the truth, and they see everything through that lens so that all the evidence in the world won't convince them of the truth because they've already decided what's true. I have a friend who tells a story from their seminary days in which they were having a theological debate with somebody over the phone. Uh, and on, on this phone call, the, 
my friend was trying to say that there, the Bible says this particular thing. And the person on the other end said, that's not what the Bible says. Read it. And so he pulls open the Bible and he reads the, the verse right there in front of him and he reads it wrongly. He had already decided what he wanted that verse to say. And so even as he's reading the words, he's reading the wrong word as he's reading it because he was so convinced in his mind of what it said. It was only later after the phone call that when he had regained sanity that he was able to pick up his Bible and read it again and realize what he had done. And so he called his friend back to apologize and was shocked that he could even do such a thing. It would be like reading John 3.16 and saying, look, it says right here, God does not love the world. Um, That's not what it says. No, I'm looking at it right here. But we can do that. We get in our minds what something says and we have determined it to be the case. It's like our modern discourse that only knows their position and can't listen to any other perspectives. We can even be so sure of our own experience and not realize that we may have misinterpreted what was really happening. The teacher was so mean today. No, she wasn't. Oh, I thought so. The Jews joined in the accusation. Are these the same Jews that were the crowd shouting various things when asked what they were upset about? They couldn't even agree on it? We become convinced of a reality that doesn't exist and surround ourselves with people sharing only our perspective to validate and enable us. So those are the accusers with their deceit and flattery. Paul then steps forward with the defense, which is one of truth and conscience. Notice that Paul's greeting of Felix is not flattery, but plain truth. I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. Paul doesn't say, you're so wise in all your judgments. I have complete confidence that you'll be impartial and fair and do the right thing. Paul simply says, you're the judge. I will make my defense in this setting. Paul had tried to make a defense before the Sanhedrin, but they wouldn't listen. Paul had tried to reason with the crowd in all sorts of settings, but they wouldn't listen. And so this is the appropriate legal setting for him to make a legal defense, and that's what he is going to do. Notice then that his defense is not to give a personal testimony, as he appropriately did before the crowd. Neither is he going to start a theological discourse as he appropriately did before the Sanhedrin. Just as he appropriately told the commander Claudius Lysias that he was a Roman citizen, so he now does an appropriate legal defense before Governor Felix. Again, Paul knows his audience and speaks appropriately to that audience. When we minister the gospel, wherever that may be, it is important that we know who it is that we are speaking to. When we're speaking to teachers, the boss, fellow students, co-workers, we need to know our audience and speak appropriately in that setting. It's not shading the truth to speak differently in different settings, unless, of course, you are shading the truth, but simply to speak what makes sense to that person. Students might speak in one way to fellow students, but then might speak differently to a teacher. Perhaps students might speak to each other about how unfair an assignment is, but then respectfully go to the teacher and explain their concerns about the nature of the assignment and see if they can dialogue a solution. And so Paul begins his defense by agreeing with the last thing that was said against him. He says, you can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. 
Because the accusers had said, by examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth. And so Paul is saying, great, let's do an examination. I encourage you to examine me and others because you will easily verify that I only showed up in Jerusalem 12 days ago and I've spent the last six days in prison. And so what they're accusing me of are things that I would have had to have done in those first six days. Paul offers then three defenses in the same order as the three accusations that were made. Paul first defends the first accusation. He says, my accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. What was the accusation? The accusation was, we have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. No, you did not. You did not find me stirring up riots all over the world because you live in Jerusalem. If I stirred up riots in other places, then let people in those other places testify to that. You can't accuse me of something that you yourselves have not witnessed. Hearsay is the legal term for information obtained from someone else that cannot be substantiated. Well, we've heard that you're stirring up trouble. Who did you hear that from? Are they here? Will they testify to this? Uh, no. So when you say, we have found this man to be a troublemaker, you've actually not witnessed this yourself in any way. Well, that's what I thought. Gossip and slander are also legal terms. Much of the problems in the world today would end immediately if we would ignore hearsays, gossip, and slander. Hey, I heard that so-and-so did such and such. I don't want to hear about it. If it's true and it's appropriate for me to know, then the appropriate person can tell me about it. If you don't know it's true from all the parties involved, then you need to stop talking about it. And so Paul concludes the point saying, and they cannot prove to you the charges they're making against me. Zero proof. Not just a little proof, zero proof. It's all hearsay. It's all gossip, slander, and false accusation. Now, Paul offers a more thorough defense of the second accusation. He says, however, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets. It's a theological but also a legal argument. We as Christians still today stand and say that we believe everything in the Old Testament. At least most Christians do this. There are some circles who seem to throw out the Old Testament either officially or unofficially. But true Christianity absolutely believes everything in the Old Testament. However, we understand the Old Testament better because of Jesus Christ, who has revealed the gospel that was concealed in the Old Testament. We now see clearly the foreshadowing of Christ in the Old Testament. We now understand the full purpose of the law and how it points to the gospel. We now understand how the various covenants with Adam and Noah and Abraham and David, how they were an unveiling of the covenant of grace. We still fully follow the moral law and understand the ceremonial law to foreshadow and be fulfilled by the Christ. Paul doesn't go into all of that theological discourse in the moment. He simply focuses on the legal aspects. 
by saying this is not a sect of Judaism. It is the fullness of Judaism that I follow. I have the same hope in God as these men that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Of course, our hope is in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that we are resurrected to eternal life because of the righteousness of Christ credited to us. And again, Paul doesn't go into all the theology of that and sticks to the legal aspects. He says, I strive to keep my conscience clear before God and men. In other words, I obey the law, which is an appropriate thing to say in a court of law. Now, Paul really goes after his defense in the third part against the third accusation that he desecrated the temple. He tells that what he's actually doing is bringing a financial gift, a financial offering that was taken to bring to the poor as a result of the well-known famine in the lands. And that he was ceremonially clean when he was in the temple courts. He was not with a crowd, was not involved in any disturbance at all until the disturbance that came because of those falsely accusing him of bringing a Gentile into the temple area, which he did not do. Because they didn't even go after the Gentile, they went after Paul, who was not with him. And so the people you really ought to be talking to, Felix, are either the Jews from the province of Asia, if they think I'm really guilty of stirring up any riots, of course, they're the ones that stirred it up, or second, to talk to the Jews who are the ones who stirred up riots in Jerusalem. You can also ask my accusers who are standing right here about any crime that they found against me in the Sanhedrin when the Pharisees and Sadducees argued with each other about the resurrection of the dead and the fullness of the Jewish faith. And that's Paul's defense. The response is filled with the fears of Felix. Felix is in a bit of a quandary. Politically, he needs the Jews to like him in part so that he can avoid civil unrest. It's, trying, it's like politicians today trying to win the women's vote or the black vote or the small business vote or the party's vote. Political lobbying is nothing new. Politicians trying to satisfy groups is nothing new. And Paul, who's just one man, and the way that's a small group, there's no political upside to Felix siding with them. There's no political upside for Felix, Felix to rule that Paul and the followers of the way are not guilty and in fact, very innocent. There is a political nightmare to ruling against the Jews in this setting. And so Felix stalls. He says, when Lysias, the commander comes, then I'll decide your case. <laughs> it's legally and politically a wise move, but he legally had the right to do what was right. But yeah, when does that ever seem to happen, right? The fears of Felix are fully on display in verse 25. As Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. And that word that's translated discoursed is the word that we've seen again and again. It's where we get our word dialogue. Paul was not lecturing Felix but having a give-and-take conversation with Felix and his wife, Drusilla. He was ministering the gospel to two people who were curious, who wanted to listen, and perhaps even wanted to believe. But it's a risky thing to surrender your life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so Felix says, okay, that's enough. Go ahead, you can leave. 
when I find it convenient, I will send for you. It is never convenient to surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We all didn't surrender because it was convenient, but because we were convicted and responded to the gospel call. If you have never responded to the gospel call and you are understanding right here, right now, that Jesus Christ is the atoning sacrifice for your sins, that you receive his righteousness and that he takes your sin and you have never responded to that, do so now. Don't wait for it to be convenient because it never will be. Do it because the Spirit is pleading with you now to receive Jesus Christ. This goes on to say that at the same time, Felix was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. He figures if Paul had brought a large sum of money to Jerusalem from churches, maybe he has access to more. If Paul comes from a wealthy family, then maybe he has access to more money. And if the bribe is large enough, that could offset the political fallout. Felix thinking, maybe if I lose political capital, but the financial capital can make up for it. But Paul's not going to accept, or he's not going to offer a bribe. And it reminds us there's always the easy way out. We can always buy an easy way out. In fact, there are corporations who break the law and try to settle out of court in order to buy their way out in a less expensive way. The truth can be expensive. For Paul, he will remain in prison for the next two years while Felix is governor, simply because Felix wants to win the Jews' favor. Because he was about to face his own legal and political problems and needs the favor of the, two, of, the, of the Jews. And so for the next two years, Paul will be unjustly left in prison because he stands for the truth. There is much more that could be said about this passage, but I want to focus on two gospel applications. First, we must not entertain false accusations even when it seems like the ends may justify the means, because we understand that the means matter too. We flourish in the long run when we stick with the truth. Not just we personally, but the community flourishes when we stick to the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, because it means we are leaning on the Lord. Psalm 12 concludes that the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver refined in a furnace of clay purified seven times. It may take a while to be refined through the fires of various trials, but the truth comes out of the refining process with greater purity and greater value. And then second, don't just complain about a problem, share the solution. Notice that Paul does not focus on the false accusations, but gives gospel solutions. In his defense, he shares his hope in the resurrection as the fullness of the faith. In his personal dealings with Felix, he shares the gospel solution of righteousness, Christ's righteousness imputed to us. The gospel solution of self-control as a fruit of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And the gospel solution of the judgment to come where our judge becomes our father. And so wherever you see something broken, don't just complain about it. Seek the gospel solution for it. The one seated on the throne is the God who doesn't just judge, 
but is also the God who redeems. Our God is not like Felix, full of fears, aware of the problem, but unwilling to do the right thing. Our God is the eternal judge and redeemer, aware of the problems, who provides the solution. And so let us minister gospel solutions to the glory of God and the continual building of Christ's kingdom. And may the truth set us free. Amen.